Welcome to the Pints and Polishing Podcast, the most influential and listened to podcast in auto detailing. Welcome to the community. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Pints and Polishing Podcast. This is Nick. You can find us at hypercleanstore.com. But today, you're going to wish you were at Hyperclean Specialist on Facebook. We're going to do an Ask Me Anything episode where I put a post in the specialist group and guys and gals put their questions in there to have answered on today's podcast. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Marissa, how do you drive in Las Vegas? Well, it's like Thunderdome here in Las Vegas. You better drive aggressive or you're going to get in a car accident. So I drive super aggressive. No other way here. It's a wild, wild city to drive in. From Billy, here's the question. I have a legitimate question. He says, if you were to make a serious run at the cannonball record, what car and why? That's a pretty easy answer for me. CTSV wagon. The number one thing to remember about the cannonball run, for those that don't know, you're traveling coast to coast as fast as you can. You need an inconspicuous car. So you can't pick Ferrari, Lambo, whatever. You're going to go right to jail. So I would do a CTSV wagon because I could put extra gas in there or extra gas tank in the back. I could do a lot of different modifications. It's super fast. It's comfortable. It's reliable. And it's inconspicuous. Uh, So that's why I would do the CTSV Cadillac wagon. From Jordan. I'd love to hear more about your progression and growth with leadership with your employees over the years at VR. I'll be trying my hand at hiring again in May, and I think that's where I need to grow to progress my business. Leadership's a funny thing. Uh, I was not a very good leader when I first started to hire, and you have to admit that to yourself. And so the biggest progression that I had was looking in the mirror and blaming myself for the things that weren't right when I hired people. When I talk to people struggling to hire, they have the same things in common. They always talk about this generation. It's so tough to hire. People don't want to work. It's always the same three to five things. The bottom line is, here's how you be a good leader. Number one, would you want to work for you? How you act, how you treat people, how you pay people, all those different things. If most people are honest in those questions, they'll become a good leader. Being a leader is not rocket science, but it is very important. There's a lot of books, a lot of podcasts on leadership. Most of it's nonsense that doesn't appeal to me. Some of it's great information, but I had to get myself under control. I had to understand what are the personality things that that make me unbearable to work for, and you got to change them. You can't just stay the same and you want to work as an employee for a nice person who treats you well, who treats you with respect, who pays you well, who gives you opportunities to make mistakes and doesn't lose their temper over it. There are a lot of basic things to leadership that we oftentimes make too difficult. When I started to look at myself and fix all of my personality problems that made me awful to work for everything changed for me. And it really was that simple, but it's not simple to look yourself in the mirror, which is, I think the number one thing about leadership. Of course, you got to know the right buttons to push. You got to know the times to push your team and the times to give them 
a break in action. But ultimately, if you're a good person, you're good to work for, you're, you're honest with your team, you're calm to be around, you take all the heat around the business and take the heat off of them, you're going to have some success. That's, that's the basics of what I do a lot better today than I did 10 years ago. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes, but you got to be able to look in the mirror and say, I made the mistake. Stop blaming the people that quit. Stop blaming all those people. It is tough to hire guys, but it's just the name of the game. If you want to grow your business from Nate, what is the basic, most basic detail supplies someone needs to start a business early in my career? I was jumping around from product to product, trying to get the best, not always the best in 90, 98% of cases. It's a great point, Nate. We, we've all been guilty of jumping around thinking the next product's going to solve my issue. I think, number one, if somebody's starting a business, I, I see far too many guys that don't start with the basics. So if somebody's asking me about starting a detailing business, you need to start with the basic, a general interior and exterior detailing package. So good pH soap, like our foam wash, is a must-have. I would have uh, our TRX product, which could be your your rubber and, and wheel cleaner. That can probably do 99% of the things you need to do on the exterior of a car and a basic interior exterior. On the interior, I would have an APC for really, really hammered interiors. And also our APC works really great on carpet stains because of the base of that product, which is a little lot different than most APCs on the market. But I would also have Revive, a, a, a quick interior detailer. I used interior detailer for a lot of years in my business, which is why we developed Revive, because I really believe in that type of product. That should take care of every medium to light soiled car. And you should only be pulling out the APC to, uh, to, to do really, really hammered interiors at a four-to-one dilution, something like that, that really needs some aggression to it. So... The last product I would have would be something like spray coat or something like slick to add that last little pop and protection to the exterior of my car. I'd probably choose slick because it'll allow me to hand apply something, giving the customer the, the idea that there's more value. Very few people understand the spray on rinse off of spray coat as a protectant, although we're able to put a lot more active ingredient in something like spray coat. So those would be my products. Again, that's what, five products, six products. You can get a lot done with all of that. Uh, obviously, we can get into polishing. We can get into extra products you can use to deliver more, more value and those types of things. But the beginner, and I would stick with a single brand. You know, Go with a reputable brand like HyperClean. There, there's several reputable brands out there. Don't jump around. Develop your system get really comfortable, develop your way of doing things and advance in your business. But you could really get by with five or six products if you really if you really just were trying to get a, a budget start. And it would be a great start. Uh, those are probably the products we use the most in my business today uh, because of the amount of cars that we touch. You know, we're putting soap on a lot of cars. Uh, if you're in a water-restricted area like California, you would replace the soap with Eco One, uh, a waterless, rinseless formula. So that to me would be where I would start. And, and, and I think that's a great question by Nate, because a lot of us jumped around a little bit and it's uh, um, never really that good uh, to do that. From Manny, 
I would like some wisdom on the initial hiring of contractors and employees and how that looks early on, i.e. hiring part-time employees, contracting, et cetera, mostly concerned about the financing side of it, part-time versus full-time, what kind of profit to look for in contractor agreements, much appreciated. Uh, Manny, this is a good question. Number one, if I was beginning the hiring process, I wouldn't be getting into the contractor side of things. Most of the time you'd be using contractors for things like, I don't do PPF. I'm going to bring in somebody to do PPF. I don't do tent. I'm going to have somebody come in for tent. I wouldn't really go down that route because you're, you're in the early stages here. The financing side of an employee is really important to understand. So I like the month approach. And so you're never going to be in a perfect situation to hire. So don't ever think that way because it's going to lead you to not hire. I'm just going to use numbers here that everybody, it's a round number. Let's say I want to pay somebody $1,000 a week, $4,000 a month. You're probably ready to hire if you have an extra $4,000 in your business that you're not going to touch for the entire month. So you know you can at least cover them for that first month of employment. Many people are going to disagree with this, but you know I could tell you to have $25,000 in employee uh, pay in the bank, and that would make it so guys never hire. Uh, make sure you can cover your first month, and now the pressure's on to bring in a lot of business and be ready for the second, third, fourth month of that employee's uh, time with you. So it's really important to, to have that first month. Uh, the kind of profit and contractor agreements, look, just don't get into that. You're not, you're not there yet. And, 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 you know, honestly, those are usually 50, 50, 60, 40, 70, 30 splits. Uh, for those wondering, that's kind of how it works usually. But the, the, the truth of the matter is, don't get into the contractor game until uh, you you have a good, steady employment with, with people on your team. Then you can go into the contractor agreements, and that'll be much more common sense after you've started paying an employee. I've never hired really part-time employees either. I've always looked to bring people on full-time. Make sure you have a month saved up. Now, what that means is if it takes you $2,000 to run your business, you need $4,000 on top of that. So you would need $6,000 at least in your bank account. And again, I'm always going to say it, it's common sense. It's better if you have a lot more than that, but make sure you can cover the first month of payroll for the guy or gal you're hiring and then work your tail off to make sure you start to build that account up and, and, and get a lot more business so you can continue to employ people and, on, and stay on the hiring train. From Patrick. Could you talk about talk about how to explain to a client the use case of a one-step correction versus a two-step, given current situations with paint depths and a vehicle that is driven daily in the elements anyway? Patrick, this is where I don't present two-step to very many clients. So my personal feel of what we're seeing out of all manufacturers, the one-step paint correction should be the thing that you build your entire business around for most of you looking to grow into a bigger business. I get it. If you want to specialize in two-step and standing and all those things, largely you're not going to be trying to build a bigger business. I think Patrick is. Uh, so I'm going to do it that way. You shouldn't have to explain a two-step correction to anybody who's driving a new Tesla. Why? Number one, that paint system, super fragile. It's very, very poorly, uh, on the quality control scale, we know that it's thin in spots. I wouldn't even present a two-step to them. 
So if you ask me what I'm doing today, we very rarely present a two-step correction. If I'm dealing with a car that needs a two-step correction, then that's exactly what I talk to the customer about. So the way to do it is in your 20 questions at the beginning of, of your presentation to a customer, finding out what they're looking for in that car is extremely important. So at the end of the day, the, the real thing is here is build up your questionnaire. And if the person fits a two-step correction, then you only talk about two steps. This is what we're going to do. We're going to compound your car. Here's what that goes into that. Then we're going to polish your car to make it look perfect. That's the way that I would do it. Far too many people are trying to talk to everybody about their whole menu of polishing and correction instead of guiding the conversation based off what that person's trying to achieve with their car. So Patrick, you can avoid this by asking more questions, finding what somebody wants to achieve with their car. Hey, I got this Tesla. I'm going to keep it two or three years. Hey man, we can make your, your vehicle look really great. We have a one step and two year coding. Here's the package that I recommend. And now you're in the consultant business. You're not in the sales business. We are all doing sales, but I do consultant sales where I ask somebody what they're trying to achieve. And then I present the best packages that fit them. So instead of using your whole menu, you should be really trying to boil down what fits that customer based on the questions you've asked and the answers to those questions. Hope that helps. Randy. How long did it take to find that right cornerstone employee that allowed you to become a businessman instead of just self-employed? Or did you develop and refine your processes to the point you were comfortable plugging good workers in and it relying on that, that and besides relying on that pillar employee, which is, uh, I'm guessing what you wanted to write there. Yeah, this is, this is a no brainer for me. You, when you're by yourself and you're starting your business, you need to be thinking about one thing only processes that are repeatable and teachable to somebody that I hire. So in this case, I do have guys that have been with me 10 years now, but I say this all the time. They're great people. They deserve a ton of credit for sticking around, but also our processes are so refined that honestly, that's what helped them become great employees as well. If somebody shows up on your doorstep and your processes are all over the place, you're going to frustrate them. They're going to leave. So instead of thinking, I, I'm looking to hire the perfect person, I'm looking to hire a good, hardworking, honest person that I teach all of these really simplistic, boiled down, right to the point processes. And that alone makes it really, really simple to start hiring. A lot of guys frustrate new employees because they have 50 ways to tell them how to clean a wheel. They have 50 ways of telling them how to polish paint. You need one way that works for everyone that you can teach. And then what will happen is, as they become more experienced, they'll help you refine and make your process even better because their talent comes into play. I hope that helps. Sean. What's your process to prep windshield or glass for coating? Not new glass. I have my ways just looking to learn. It's easy. If you want to really prep an old windshield, an old windshield, guys, is a year old, right? It's got a lot of wear and tear on it, a lot of contamination. As you just go over it with 
a microfiber or a wool pad uh, on a DA, some compound, and you go to work. A uh, couple passes, your pad will come back looking dirty. Uh, it's, it's, it's cleaning up the glass. Then I would use our prep spray wipe, and I would uh, wipe it, the, the, thing, the uh, windshield down. And then at that point, I'd call it good. Uh, go ahead and install glass coating, things like that. That is the best way that I've found. You're not trying to collect, uh, correct the glass. You are trying to do one simple thing. Get the most contamination you can off of the glass. Of course, if it needs clayed or it has some type of overspray on it, do that before you polish. But honestly, you can accomplish a lot with a nice, good compound and a microfiber pad and call it a day. Uh, don't overthink it. I know you guys don't, but that's a real simple way on some glass that may need just a little cleaning up prior to putting a glass coating on. Sean has another one. How can you tell on an older single stage paint job if you have enough to polish or compound on the surface? I do have a paint gauge, but didn't think it worked on single stage. Yeah, your paint gauge should be able to measure exactly what's on that because it's just measuring how thick the paint is in between that and the subsurface. So you shouldn't have a problem measuring it unless you're on something like fiberglass. Most paint gauges work on aluminum and steel panels. You shouldn't really have an issue. So feel comfortable using your paint gauge. But I want to say this. We don't really know how accurate paint gauges are all the time. There's a lot of cheap ones. There's a lot of expensive ones. Some work well. Some don't work at all. Who really knows? It's honestly the Wild West. Uh, just go, like, when I work on valuable cars, I go from least aggressive to most aggressive. And if I'm really scared about the position I think the car is in, I will only be aggressive on the spots on the car that I think need compounding. And the rest, I will really try to work a really heavy one step to get where I need to go. And there are some cars, like a rare Porsche we had in that had been in a car fire where I didn't even chance it with a two-step. We just did a complete one-step on it. So that's going to be a little bit judgment-related, uh, but your paint gauge should work. Excuse me. This one's from Billy. What does your employee onboarding process look like? Recruitment, training, retention, et cetera. He's got a couple parts to this question. I'll just answer that. I recruit from everywhere. People send me people. If I meet a, a guy at a fast food restaurant that's doing a great job, I'll hand him a card. Uh, I'll do anything to recruit somebody. Training is simple. My guys handle it. Everybody starts off on uh, rims, tires, undercarriage, door jams, all the little, you know, cleaning up engines, things like that get the basics of working with us, then they go from there. We, we teach in a logical progression, and that helps with your, your final point, which is retention. Retention comes down to people feeling comfortable, having places to grow, and their pay going up. So we retain by paying people more money. There is no secret to that. Treat them well, pay them more money, and that's what's going to happen. His next part of his question is, what kind of software do you run? I have my own CRM that I use internally that I developed before any of these other ones came on. So I use uh, Google Calendar is attached to all my guys. I also use like an, excuse me, an Excel spreadsheet that I developed years ago 
and that's the automation of our business. Marketing and social media, here's kind of where I'm unique. Our marketing is more towards the very, very high end who aren't on Google usually, who aren't on uh, Facebook looking for my types of services. So we go to a lot of events. I went to a black tie event last weekend. We talked about it on a podcast. I, I network more than I market in social media. So if I was starting out, I would probably hit marketing on social media. I would be hiring a company that specializes in marketing for our business. And sometimes those are going to run you three to 5,000, 6,000, $10,000 a month. But I would go that route if I really, really wanted to succeed but as of now, I don't do a lot of heavy marketing and I don't do a whole bunch on social media. It's not needed in my business because of the kind of customers we're dealing with. So I would rather network through these events, through different groups, through different people I know. That's what I do today. It, I know not everybody's in that position. So I would hire a marketing and social media team and I'd be willing to pay five grand a month. I mean, it's happening every day. Uh, but that five grand a month could turn you into a $250,000, million shop pretty, pretty or, or business mobile pretty quickly. Uh, they are effective. I don't have any that I recommend, So, uh, but there are they are out there. How do you remain an employer of choice is his last one. My guys work on average, less than 40 hours a week when they become efficient and they make money as if they were working 50, 60, 70 hours a week. That, that's, that's how I remain an employer of choice. My guys get a company truck. They can drive back and forth wherever they want. They have a company credit card, all those different types of things. How do you keep an upbeat workplace? We joke around all day, every day. We prank each other. We, you know, make jokes about you know, what somebody's wearing or what shoes they just bought. I mean, we, we treat it like a, like a locker room. You know, I have all guys that work for me and we bust balls all day and there's no better way than that. You know, you want people to want to come to work. And so make it a, a joke place, make it a, a place that everybody comes in and has fun. Don't let it ever get personal, but honestly, man, that's how we do it. Benefits. Some of my guys have insurance if they've been with me long enough. I wouldn't worry too much about that at this point for most guys, you know, just be a great place to work, pay people exceptionally well, you'll start to develop long-term employees. And at that point you can get benefits, 401k, things like that. That, that stuff comes down the, the line. He has another part of his question Billy does, which is a good one. What does your customer's journey look like? First contact, checking in the vehicle, customer information, upselling, after-sales service. I'm a phone guy. Our first contact, if, if let's just say they send me a text or an email, I'm trying to get somebody on the phone. We check in the vehicle at the shop or in person. We go over. We don't really do a whole bunch on that, meaning... I'll only say something to the customer when checking in the vehicle, if there's something damaged that they didn't know about or something out of the ordinary, I don't do a whole bunch of, I haven't found a need and I haven't found an argument to sit there and tell the customer every little thing. Some guys have success with that. That's not my style. Customer information you acquire, name, email, mobile phone. That's it. It's all I need and I can have a good good rapport with my customer upselling 
This is a really tricky one because I don't do a ton of upselling. I sell people exactly what I think they need in the moment. I don't do a lot of upselling and people may think I'm leaving money on the table, but I built a seven figure business on just doing exactly what I think that car needs. Again, consultant sale selling is, is my style. This is what I would do if it were my car. So here's an example. I see a lot of tent shops that have 10 different levels of tent, five different levels of tent. If I ran a tent shop, I would not have the lowest levels of tent even on my board. I would have three grades of tent that I really believe in, and I would call it good. So I would have no reason to upsell. Usually guys that upsell start at a very low point already, and then they think they've upsold because they went one level above that. Well, I would rather eliminate all of these you know, cheap, crappy tents and only do right by the customer and, and having three really good different tiers of tents but my base level would already be great. So I wouldn't be in the, you know, three windows for $99 gain. Uh, so I don't do a lot of upselling. After sales service, it's pretty simple for us. Everybody that deals with us gets on our maintenance program. So that's how we grow our maintenance business. They don't have to worry about taking care of their car. There's some cars that don't, you know, they just want to come in for windshield film at that point in time, we don't have a bunch of service afterwards. Usually that person's just looking to protect their windshield and they're out the door. But most people hop on our maintenance program. Dale, how about something on sales and overcoming customers' objections? Also, in the paint and body world, we'd sign contracts with our paint companies to use their products exclusively, and in return, we'd get preferential pricing. In the past, they would factor pricing based on sales of the prior quarter. I find it interesting no one in the coding world does that. Well, we do have distributor programs uh, that, that people are involved in. And if you wanted to, to order, you know, $1,000, $2,000, dollars just in coding, we could work something out with you. You're right. The paint and body world is very different. And that's basically because 3M... <laughs> started all these perks programs to try to dominate the paint and body world in my estimation. And that's exactly what they've done. PPG and other companies like that. That's just a very different world. Uh, it's not a bad idea for the coding world, but the problem is you have so many people that don't move tons of coding where most paint and body shops move a lot of paint and body stuff. So you have a higher amount of product moving through a paint and body shop than you do some average detail sh shop or detail owner's business when it comes to coding. The guys that are moving tons of coding or the guys that are moving tons of PPF, the guys that are moving tons of tent, they do get some special pricing, but it's volume related at that point. And, and that's basically a, probably the only efficient way to do it. You're talking about major corporations like 3M who basically made up these things and, you know, quite frankly, give a ton of product away for free. Uh, that's just not economical or even possible in the coding world. On sales and overcoming objections, that's, I think it's a lot your personality. I don't have a problem with somebody objecting or, or, or anything like that, but I think if your questioning is really great, you eliminate objections. Far too many people that talk about overcoming objections with a customer during the sales process just don't ask enough questions. So when I ask 20 questions, I'm leading them right to where the thing they need to buy. 
So I don't usually get a ton of objections at the end of the sales process. I may have some people that say I can't afford it or it's too expensive. We'll, we'll then do the obvious thing. Well, we have other packages that may fit you better. What's your price point? Things like that. But I honestly think if you're getting a lot of objections, you need to think about your questioning in the way that you're selling rather than how to overcome an objection. Because a lot of this stuff and a lot of the packages people sell are between $300 and, and $2,000. And if you're talking to that person, those should not be big financial decisions for that person. That's just the reality of it. Uh, I would really look at my questioning if I was getting a lot of objections. Bill asked this questions. How do you find good employees and what qualities do you look for in the people you hire? We have a really simple thing. First of all, it's hard to find good employees just out of the blue. Anybody gives me good service at a gig that I think I can outpay what they're doing at that point, I'm going to hand them a card and say, hey, man, I own a company. I think you'd be really great at what we do. Give me a call. The qualities I look for are pretty simple. And we talk about this in the interview process, show up, shut up and keep up. And I've explained that on a, po uh, a previous podcast. So go check that out. I just want people that want to show up, people that want to work and people that are honest. And you can tell that if you interview properly. I mean, I don't want to get into a whole interview discussion here because it's pretty lengthy and everybody's a little different, but honestly, it's not going to be easy to hire. You know, so many people think that's, you're going to find some secret magic. I just look for an honest, hardworking person, somebody that wants to show up and we're, we have a zero tolerance policy for being late. So we weed people out pretty quick if that's not who they are. From Corey, how do I sell dose when people say I'd rather have a three-year coating? I offer wash clay uno or a polish and tray. When I first started, I only offered polish and dose because it was easy. Well, this is actually a very good question. So number one, Wash Clay and Uno is a great one, and Trey's a great one. If you're having success with those two and you're selling a lot of them, you need to stay in your lane and keep doing those. But this is the good, better, best system. So your good would be Wash Clay and Uno. Your better would be a polish and dose. Your best would be a polish and tray in this scenario, okay? The reason you may be having a problem selling dose is because you don't have enough room in your pricing. So let's just use some easy numbers. Let's say my wash clay and Uno is $3.99. Let's say my polish and dose is $7.99. That would mean that my polish and tray should be somewhere around $1,099, $1,199, and now I've created enough room to make it a real decision for people. The, the way that good, better, best works is you oftentimes make your middle package the most value for your business and for your customer because you want to sell the most of those things. And here's the reason why. Let's say that my my polish and dose is $699, $799 in that range. Let's just use $799 so I could use the, the proper hours here to, to do this. If my if my polish and dose is $799, I I know that most cars that come into everybody's shop today are mid-sized SUVs. It's the most popular vehicle sold. 
if I can polish the car in four hours and I can apply dose in an hour, I've got five hours into the gig. Okay. Decon, all that kind of stuff. Let's say it takes me five hours and I just made seven ninety nine on that. Here's the greatest part about that. I've made a ton of money. I've provided a ton of value and I've made the most profit because the amount of time spent on that is the least amount for the most amount of money. Usually when I do a polish and tray, I'm going to spot compound. Probably if the hood and the roof and the trunk lid are in bad spots, I may compound and polish those doing more of a one and a half step. So I may be 10, 11, 12 hours into a quote unquote polish and tray job. And I'm only at 1099 to 1199. I'm near that hundred dollars. Well, for my dose job, I was more like 150, $175 an hour into my business as revenue because of the hours spent. So maybe look at your pricing isn't far enough apart. So if people don't see the value in dose, they may not see a bigger enough price difference to jump up to tray. I hope that helps. But here's the point. If you're having success with wash clay and Uno and then jumping to a polish and tray, don't change anything. It's okay that you don't sell every single coating you can sell as long as you're moving forward and getting a lot of work. If you're having trouble getting work, that's when you need to take a look at what I just said. From Mason, I'd personally like to know what goes into your mobile rigs. Maybe it was talked about before, but I might have missed it. How you guys use water and generators and all that. Always an interesting topic for me. Thanks. We keep it very simple. I don't like things that can break. I don't like all these reels everywhere. I don't, I just don't like it. So we have four door cab trucks. We take out the back seats of the truck, all of our, you know, reserve chemicals, all of our chemical bottles in a like big Husky bag that guys bring out during the job towels, all that kind of stuff goes in there. In our bed of our trucks, we have a hundred gallon water tanks that we have specially built for each truck by somebody here locally. They take the dimensions of what fits that truck so we can get to a hundred and we have a cover over it. For pressure washers, if you do a lot of work, you need a gas pressure washer. My opinion, guys that don't do a lot of work, you can get, you can get by with a Krenzla or an electric. If you're doing a ton of work, we use gas. All my trucks have gas. Those are mounted to the truck bed, literally like with big lag bolts all the way through the truck bed that we have somebody do here. We then have a couple water and rinse buckets in the back. Of course, we have a 50-foot power washer hose with a gun. Then we run 4,000 to 6,500 generators. We've had the best luck with Predators. I had a ton of luck early in my career with Honda. We've had really, really big problems with Honda recently. Could be luck of the draw for us. Okay, I'm not going to bash Honda, but we've had terrible luck here as of the last two years with some Honda products, which is kind of surprising, but that's what I run. We don't have a bunch of reels everywhere. We use a simple rigid vacuum with good attachments that allow us to get into every cracks and crevice. We don't carry, we carry a steamer in the, in the cab of the truck. For those uh, times we may need one, again, we have a couple polishers, we have polish, we have all that stuff in the cab of the truck. We keep it so simple that 
people would be amazed that there's not a lot going on in our setups. We don't have big fancy setups. I think one of the things I see is a guy go, guys going into a bunch of debt to build out some van that they think they need to have. Look, man, you don't want to be the guy that shows up in a trashed vehicle and you're trying to detail out of a car, but you can really do a lot with a truck. You can, you can really, really undercover with a lock tonneau cover, put a lot of things in the bed. We've proven it for years. My guys then get to drive a truck around. They, they like that more than driving a van around. So look, if I had to start my business over again, I probably would have had, you know, nice transit vans, but they weren't around when I was building my company, not at the level they are now, certainly not as small and affordable as they are now. Uh, I just don't have the ability to change over my business at this point and don't really have a need to. So I hope that helps. The last question today is from Dustin. How can a detailer really take advantage of flipping cars? Where do you look to purchase local auctions? Question mark. We see body and mechanic shops flipping constantly. Let's start with the first part of this question. Flipping cars was a lot easier pre-COVID with the values of cars going through the roof. There's a lot more risk. The reason you see body and mechanic shops constantly flipping is because A, they can fix body work at no cost to them. Mechanic shop can fix any code that's being thrown or any engine issue, which is really hard for a detailer to do and make money, right? So if you're getting into flipping cars, which I've done a lot of, you need to have a really good body and mechanic shop to give you good pricing. That's hard for guys to find, especially in today's economy. I purchase off of sellers, uh, you know, people actually selling their own vehicles the best way. So you can go to Auto Tempest, which searches like eBay and Craigslist and all this stuff at once. You, you can go to some local auctions. Those cars are going to come with a lot of risk. If you're good at it, you know, you need a code reader and all those kinds of things to kind of know. Then you got to get, you know, flip things you know about. So in Dustin's case, he knows a lot about Dodge, Dodge vehicles. Flip Dodges. You know, if you're a guy that spent your whole life driving Fords or Chevys or whatever, pick those brands that you know the codes, you know the things that need fixed, blah, 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 blah. That's the easiest way to get started. What I did was I got a really expensive code reader. I had a mechanic that was looking for work. I had a body guy who was a one-off. He just had a little tiny one-base shop. That's who I worked with when I needed severe body work. I got good pricing. In some cases, I would flip them in on the money, depending on the car. Yeah, man, it's going to be hard for a detailer to take as, as much advantage of flipping cars as a, as a body shop and, and as a mechanic shop because the money is in buying something that's super distressed and fixing it. So right now, I wouldn't encourage any detailer to get in it unless you're really going to take and spend some time. But yeah, 2019, 2018, 17, and before, it was much easier to flip cars. But that's the kind of idea. His last question is, why has the Porsche 944 market skyrocket, skyrocketed over the last year? I used to see them for sale for super cheap. Now it's back to the mid-teens for something that needs work. This is Porsche, man. Uh, the 996, which was untouchable, nobody wanted it, could find a good 996 turbo for no money. You, they're, they're now flipping for a bunch of money. This is now the cheapest one left. That's why you're seeing people flood into it. They're horrible cars. I wouldn't get involved with them. You're right. They have you know, gone up. But the truth is, it's because Porsche as a brand has just risen to a level of insanity. 
it's good on them, right? But when you buy a 944, you're not buying a GT3. And so what you're seeing is probably those beginner level guys that are still looking for a deal on a Porsche because the brand is hot. And guess what? I'm happy for them, but I wouldn't want to own one. I don't like them. They don't, they're not the, they don't give me the essence of Porsche. So you're seeing it because cheapskates are trying to get into a brand that's no longer cheap on these used vehicles. That's the number one reason. And it doesn't look like Porsche is going anywhere price-wise at the moment. If the stock market hits the skids, they'll come down. You may see some deals out there. But the reason you're seeing the flood into 944 is because it's a red-hot brand. It's an earlier model for them, and people think they're getting something that's going to be worth a lot of money someday, and they aren't. They're not going to be worth a lot of money. Now, I'm not saying they can't go up in value. They're just not going to be four, five, six dollars $600,000 vehicles like probably most people think who are buying these vehicles. So, guys, this was Ask Me Anything. I'm going to try to do this about once a month. You have to be in the HyperClean Specialist Group to enter in a question. I will get better at it. It's hard to read things on air. You probably heard a little more um or things like that on today's podcast, so I apologize. But I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. You guys have a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week. 